Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the HOCL industry. HOCL is the chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infection, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. With dozens of use cases, HOCL is the most important chemical of the 21st century. Combining the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water, HOCL will revolutionize skin care, wound care, pet care, food processing, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at hocla.org. My guest today is Visakan Virasamy. Visa previously handled the blog and content strategy at Referral Candy. He's a marketing guy with a deep specialization in producing content. He's written hundreds of blog posts and edited hundreds more. He's hired, managed, and mentored several writers, and is a three-time Quora top writer with over 9,000 followers. His content there has over 8 million views and has had posts featured on Time.com, Inc., Lifehack.org, and Yahoo News. Visa is the author of Friendly Ambitious Nerd, and you can find him on Twitter at VisaConV. That's V-I-S-A-K-A-N-V. Thank you so much for being here, Visa, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So take me back. What first attracted you to marketing and content creation? Marketing. I would say that before I I thought of marketing as a profession, I was always interested in books, in writing, in music. And so I I was, even before I had a job, when I was a teenager, I used to blog a lot and I used to write and participate on forums. And so I always, I think I had a sense of what it's like to participate in, in discussions, like in, in the broadest sense, right, with, with everybody and everything. And it was my, so, so I, when I played in a band, I used to do marketing for the band, although I didn't particularly think of it as such, but it's like promoting your shows, right, persuading people to come and stuff like that. And my boss who hired me at Referral Candy, Dinesh, he found me through my blog. So he was he was looking for someone to manage the company's blog and he liked my blog. And so he asked me for coffee, suggested that I run the blog. And once I joined, I, I got to learn a lot more about... Because so the company was a SaaS company, software as a service in e-commerce and so I ended up kind of studying that domain learning more about that industry 
And yeah, I found that it's a very natural fit for me to kind of always be studying communities, messaging. Uh, I would say that before I started in marketing, I also had, I've, I've just always had interest in literary pursuits. So also journalism, also advertising, like just, I've always been interested in ideas, how they are presented, how they're received. And so it just, it just seemed like a very natural progression for me. Oh, very cool. So taking back a little further, tell me what was life like growing up in Singapore? Growing up in Singapore, well, it's a very small country. It's an island city-state, and it's relatively conservative to other, I would say, other major cities, but not as conservative. It's kind of in the middle of a bunch of spectrum. So it's it's more conservative than America or European cities, but it's less conservative than places that you would consider extremely conservative. And what else? It's pretty diverse. So Singapore is in Southeast Asia and Southeast Asia itself, I would say, is a region that has... So the way to think about Southeast Asia is that it has been along a global shipping route for centuries, millennia. And so what what that causes is that you have people from many different backgrounds. You have and the cultures are very intertwined, intertwined. And so like Indonesia is a Muslim majority country and their national airline has a Hindu emblem. And Thai, Thailand is a Buddhist country and it also has Hindu kind of origins. And it's and Singapore is like that as well. So it's like you'll find, you know, very different religions, very different, like very different groups of people, but they all kind of mingle together. The food is great. It's it's at the equator, so it's very hot and humid. What else? The thing that Singaporean kids will tell you is that the education system is very intense, and which it is, and there's a lot of pressure to kind uh, kind of on in on par with like Korea and Japan. I think Singapore, Korea, and Japan are usually kind of mentioned as like pressure cooker education environments. Like we're expected to do very well. And there's a lot of kind of pressure to, to succeed academically. And there's a lot of uh, assumptions, like broad cultural assumptions that you're supposed to get a high paying job and do well. And those are the things that are kind of uh, celebrated by, by society. And it's, there's, there's not much room for kind of like renegade, misfit, creative pursuits. Our founding prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, once famously said, poetry is a luxury we cannot afford. Because Singapore was was invaded by the Japanese during World War II. And so a lot of Singapore's narrative and story has been its recovery from the invasion and from, you know, like the so-called economic success miracle story. And so like playing in a band when you're a teenager in Singapore is like, I would say it's extra rebellious relative to how compared <laughs> to a lot of other places, because it's just it's just not done. Like most people would see it, like even other kids don't necessarily think it's cool. They think you're kind of crazy. They're like, why are you doing that? You should be studying. You know, like people actually say that. So that's <laughs> kind of, yeah, that's kind of where I, I came from. Oh, very cool. So I would imagine then that the internet had sort of an extra disruptive force behind it when it's oh, coming sure. up against this entrenched, whether you want to call it a bureaucracy or a mindset or yeah. a, a patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. So if you read in the early 90s, you would see articles like William Sapphire's Disneyland with the death penalty, right? It's this very draconian, authoritarian sort of, of description, which, which there is a truth to. And I think 
so probably similar to what it's like for people maybe growing up in more conservative towns. It's like just the access to information, access to different worldviews and perspectives. It's like the more kind of narrow... Well, there's, so there's an interesting paradox that I haven't even really thought about in great detail. But like, while we have like a certain cultural diversities, there was a certain, there is also like an overarching monoculture in a sense with regards to like just economic policy and and like this political. I don't want to say repression, but just kind of not a lot of of room for experimentation or nonconformity. You know, kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's yeah, there's very little of that. There are no protests. There are no everything's kind of strict and clean and and sterile and yeah, like people just don't have that sort of like uh, vibrance in the recent collective memory. I I will say so. I, I think um, when people talk about Singapore in the mainstream global media, I think what people tend to overlook is that this is a relatively recent-ish phenomenon, like 20, 30, 40 years maybe. Like if you go back 100 years, like it's different, but people seldom think to go back that far. So it's very much like post-war, downstream aftershocks. And I, I'm pretty optimistic that that can change because it, the, con the contexts have changed, circumstances have changed. But what were you asking again? You're asking about the internet. Yeah, so the internet was really... I was very, so when I was a child, like going to libraries was the thing that excited me, like reading about all kinds of different cultures, different backgrounds, like ancient Egypt and space and dinosaurs and all those things. And then when I discovered the internet, it was like, wow, it's like, it's like the library times 10 and it's in real time and I can participate in it directly and I can talk to strangers from all over the world who play the same video games as I do and stuff like that. And yeah, so the internet was very exciting and formative for me. Oh, definitely. And it seems like becoming someone who is, I guess they use the term lovingly or jokingly, like extremely online, right? You're writing on Twitter and, and engaging with yeah. a lot of different people from all over the world. That's sort of even more of a almost like punk rock position to take in Singapore, I'd imagine, is whether it's yeah. your parents or other elders thinking like, oh, hey, you need to go and do this or do this kind of job or that. And it's like, well, I yes. can make money online or something. And that I would imagine that's a huge departure. That's correct. Yeah, that's that's something that I think my my international audience does doesn't always appreciate very much. And I, I kind of like it that way. I like that I can sort of like so locally when I tell people that I'm some guy who posts a lot on the internet and I have like a Patreon and I have ebooks and that's what I do. Like they don't they don't usually know how to to respond to that. Although I do think it's changing. I think people are increasingly kind of, you know, like globally now we know that, oh, there are YouTubers and there's podcasters and all those things. So so there is there is like a sea change. Like more and more people are realizing that this is a thing compared to, let's say, even five years ago. But yeah, like broadly, it is it is something that is still quite deviant relative to my mainstream society. Mm, yeah, definitely. And it seems like now there's a lot of discussion around the multiverse or yep. the, sorry, not the multiverse, the metaverse, totally different topics, but we can get into that as well. But how do you think extremely online people are going to transition to the metaverse? Is it just some people are going to be resistant and just stay where they're at and other people are going to go full bore and make whole new worlds for themselves? That sounds about right. Yeah, I think there will be a, a range of responses, right? Some people are going are gonna to be dive completely in 
and maybe even to their detriment, right? Like this. I mean, even <laughs> even now, right? Even even yeah. with like YouTube and stuff, like there are people who make careers out of it, and there are also people who kind of like you dive into the deep end and you can't swim, right? And then you get you get swept up in currents beyond your imagining or control. So there, there's always a risk, I think, with anything. I mean, in any any industry or any whether you're talking about Hollywood or you're talking about Wall Street or whatever it is, there's there's always some people get successful, some people kind of fly too far to the sun. And yeah, I think we'll see that. And and also I think there will be people who kind of don't really get it and kind of are wary about it and don't really get super involved. I think sometimes the narrative frames it like people will be left behind. I think there may be some truth to that, although it tends to be a bit I mean, I think the reality is usually a little bit more boring than like the projections. So like people will still be people will still get by. Mm. So what technological innovations are you most excited for over the next decade? So like I have like my my kind of boring personal answers, which is that so I, I work with a lot of information like text and and you know I vlog a, I've been vlogging more recently, tweet a lot, and so like privately I'm like personally, I'm very excited for like just better ways of managing all that information. Like I fantasize about having. Have you watched uh, Minority Report? There's this interface. Yeah. There's this interface. Oh yeah, you want to be swiping like, all your stuff around and playing. Yeah, that would be that would be great. <laughs> I think I, I think the technology is like basically already here, but it's not yet been like productized. Like there's like yeah. AR stuff and yeah. yeah. Oh, very. Cool. So I look forward to when that becomes like super super seamless and like affordable also things like so i wouldn't consider myself like a like a biohacker but like i think eventually we'll see things like you can monitor your blood glucose levels with like i saw my 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 mother-in-law's sister she has this thing which is like so she's a diabetic i think and so she has this like little circle patch sort of thing that she that has a prick that she puts in on her arm and it it has like an app on her phone that tells her what her blood sugar level is, I think, something like that, which seemed, so I just saw this like a few months ago, and that seemed like like some kind of progress on that particular front that isn't, it's still, it's still kind of for monitoring patients, but I imagine that in our lifetime, like in the next decade or so, maybe, like the tech will get even less invasive and cheaper, and then like, I can imagine like all your... Like we, so we already have like sleep trackers and, and diet trackers and stuff. And I just feel like all of those things will become a bit more seamless and easier to use. And so like it won't just be for like enthusiasts or people who need to track it for, for like health conditions. But we might even just have it just to like sleep better and stuff like that. I'm kind of excited about that. What else? Well, Twitter is... So yeah, I think information management stuff bio stuff i'm sure there's a whole bunch of things that i'm not even thinking about that will there's, there's surely some product and and the, the wild thing is i remember when i when i first made my twitter account it was like 2007 i didn't have a smartphone then i didn't imagine that one day i would be tweeting from my phone right? <laughs> yeah. and so so i imagine that there would be all kinds of new technology that we haven't yet even begun to consider but yeah it's like it's like there's a quote from I think it might be Ev Williams, who's like one of the blogger co-founders, Twitter co-founders. And he said something like, the way you build a billion dollar company is you take a human desire that, that is age old, that people have always wanted to do. And then you find a way to remove steps between 
people and that desire. And then, yeah, so similarly, it's like all of the things that we want to do, like will get easier and easier. And and there, there'll be pros and cons to that. Like, there's also that, that sci-fi quote, I can't remember from who, but they were saying that the job of the sci-fi author is not to imagine the, the, the car, but to imagine the traffic jam, right? Which, which before there's a car, you can't conceive of a traffic jam. And so there will be like new things that trouble and annoy us that we can't even begin to imagine yet. But I'm, I'm generally optimistic. I think for people who are kind of at the bleeding edge, who are able to navigate complexity and, and challenges like that, for, for us, it's pretty exciting because like whatever happens, we, we will try and find a way to make the best of it. Oh, definitely. So tell me, are there any companies or industries that really excite you or you're really impressed by right now? So I've always been impressed by Shopify. So even when I started work, my company was in, was in back in 2013. My company was uh, Referral Candy. We used to make e-commerce software for online stores. And a lot of our clients were Shopify users. And so from 2013 to 2018 or so, I just witnessed that, oh, every year, the Shopify platform seems to be getting better and better. There are more and more people using it. And like that, con that trajectory just continued all the way. So when they IPO, it was like a no-brainer for me to buy some stock. And I, I wish I had bought more because <laughs> it, that, that, it just, they just keep growing. They just keep doing the product. just keeps getting better. It gets more and more intuitive. And like, I think they do things like they give loans to small business owners. It's really, they are really trying to do the work, right? Of, of making e-commerce easier, more accessible, better. And I, I do think that if you zoom all the way out and you kind of see the big picture of, of like human history and, and economic progress, it's like the more people get to start businesses and get to sell things in, in the open market, like the more wealth is created and people get to just have more options. And like for small business owners, it's like freedom to manage their own time, freedom to do what they want. And that I think is is exciting. I think the more business owners we have in the world, like the better that gets, especially for small and medium business owners. That's, so that's one. I'm I'm also kind I'm also kind of a, a straightforward, boring tech bro in some sense. Like you know, I'm excited about space. I'm excited about advancements in solar, advancements in hopefully we'll see advancements in nuclear. Maybe we'll see something in fusion. That kind of thing. Like any, anything that kind of pushes the frontier. There's this great set of videos about. Neil Tyson talking about space, like in the 60s and 70s, where like the, the space race, right? Like and how and how back at in those times it was. So the whole space race between the US and the USSR was was a function of, of ideological conflict and, and global, the Cold War, right? Like a na nation supremacy. But like uh, when they did that and then they were racing to the moon, like that had an had a had an effect on culture, right? Like like he has this whole list. It's very it's very uh, inspiring to just see the whole list all at once. Like Doctors Without Borders was formed like a couple of years after the photograph of Earth Prize was taken from the moon, right? The, the, the first time humanity saw a picture of the Earth from space, which was when they visited the moon. And that was when they first conceived of just a globe without national barriers, national boundaries. And yeah, so I've always I've always been excited about the, the prospect of how we can expand our global consciousness from from like a new perspective. And and similarly, like the, the technology that you develop en route to like GPS started out with military applications and there's this all of these things that that end up improving our quality of life in ways that we now take for granted. 
And yeah, so anything anything that does that, that kind of expands human capacity and potential, I'm very excited about. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I've, I've always been impressed with with Shopify as well. The the one thing I'm I've started to think about a lot more is how much it has empowered individual business owners, but mm -hmm. they still remain siloed, right? So there's for now, yeah. a, 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 I think a huge gap and a huge opportunity to for another company or for Shopify to essentially create marketplaces, right? So you talked mm -hmm. about recruiting an army or a legion of, of friendly, ambitious nerds, right? But yeah. you could have thousands and thousands of people following you. All of you have your own Shopify stores, and they're mm -hmm. all just islands, you yeah. know, out there, totally independent of one another. But I'd love to see Shopify have something like launching like partnership marketplaces where, where you could get together with friends and other people you meet online and say, hey, let's sort of network our stores together in a way that's almost similar to like going through an indoor shopping mall, right? Yeah, because we've yeah. really decentralized the shopping mall across the internet. Mm -hmm. And I think Correct. it's really due for sort of a rebundling around it could be different topics, right? Like, oh, these are yeah. all psychedelic companies, or these are all into sustainability or green living or, or whatever it might be. There seems to be a gigantic opportunity there. Yeah, I, I think I'm sure that's on their product roadmap. But more broadly, I think there's yeah, there's always value in thoughtful curation. Mm. The challenge often in, in, in practice seems to be that I think people tend to be motivated by relatively short term motivations. Like uh, mm. so it's like people like very often people want to start a business community or some kind of community right and then they they're they're always kind of in a they're often kind of in a rush to monetize or i, I think there's a there's a perception bias because the people who are in a rush to monetize their communities or their curations or whatever like they tend to be the loudest and most visible and when eventually they kind of try to grow too fast and they're willing to cut corners and they're willing to like charge too much or whatever it is that they do that they 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 do in the attempt to try and monetize quickly and then they tend to crash and burn and or, or, or like the examples where things crash and burn are, are the most salient right we see them in the news and one of my kind of recurring talking points that i try to encourage people to consider is to play longer games and to think more long term i think and, and it's, it's kind of an uphill battle because i think humans tend to be almost wired to to care about the immediate and near-term future. And like, we're not so good at thinking long-term. But if we get even like 5 to 10% better at thinking longer term, like it opens up all these new options and all these new opportunities that is not so obvious in the short run. And very often, in fact, I find that when I study history and I read up about people who achieve great things and it's like... It's it, the the popular narrative tends to be that oh these people are so smart they're like they're like really sharp and clever and uh, there's some of that but I wouldn't say that they are like stratospherically smarter than the best of us. It's more like very often they have a longer term vision. They are willing to tolerate things longer, discomfort longer, and they are willing to wait longer for opportunity. And when they do things like that, they don't get swept up in like the daily, monthly kind of news and and like those things and yeah so I, I feel like if we can encourage more people to think harder about what they really care about and what they want to accomplish over their lifetimes like to think about what would you like to have accomplished 50 years from now right that, that sort of thinking I bet we will see like 
a bunch of opportunities will open up that aren't obvious now based on our assumptions, based on efficient marketplace hypotheses and, and thinking in terms of kind of narrow incentives. Like if you want to start a media company today, like if you want to start a business and then you want to make money, not even a lot of money, but you just kind of want to make money uh, just so you can keep the business afloat. The incentive structures are very challenging. And so you will likely find that, okay, either you need ad revenue. And once you need ad revenue, you need traffic. Once you need traffic, you'll be like, okay, like, like some of your content might be better in some fundamental way, but it doesn't get as much traffic. And then you end up optimizing for more traffic and then you get more fluffy, clickbait, outreach type of content. That's one thing that happens. Another thing that happens is if you want to go like a subscription route or like have, have patrons, that's that's I, I personally like that a bit more, but I think when even that has has certain challenges and the the way around that, in my opinion, that people don't think about as much is that if you keep your costs low, right? So so once you once you have like hiring employees and you have to pay their salaries and then you have to pay for like you have to account for like healthcare and, and people's I don't know, just all the costs that if you want to, if you have an office, well, now now we have remote options. So that, that frees people up to try more in, in new and interesting things. But it used to be that you had to start an office and then you have to pay for payroll and HR and all those things. And it just, it just all adds up. And then you end up kind of getting nudged towards very similar business models with very similar outcomes. Whereas I think people underestimate what like, a hobbyist can do or a network of hobbyists can do in their spare time over a long period of time and if you think about it that's that's kind of you could consider wikipedia to be kind of a model of something like that like it's it's actually amazing like people don't talk about this enough it's like the, the existence of wikipedia that it exists and it's reliable and it has information about basically everything yeah yeah and it's basically <laughs> run by volunteers and on donations and yeah i think that so the impressive thing is that Jimmy Wales and that early founding team and stuff, like they were deliberate about not wanting to go the advertising route or not wanting to go like raise mm. venture funding or whatever. Like right. they were strictly trying to do a donation model sort of thing. And I think, yeah, we it, it will be nice to see more things kind of experiment along those lines. And so I kind of think of myself as, as someone who's trying to do something in that sort of space. Like I don't have like super precise fixed plans because i think as you expand and i think the the flexibility that is afforded you when you are willing to kind of play by and and see the big picture and stuff like it's better to not have a fixed plan in case you have better and better ideas come along and and you get better feedback from the market and whatnot but yeah i just i just i'm i'm quite passionate about trying to see what can happen in that space yeah i think that there is such a huge need for more long-term thinking, you know, at, at all levels of society from the local level, all the way through the international level. And we, I think one of the most important things to get there is embracing second, third and N order thinking, right? Figuring mm -hmm. out yeah. what are the downstream effects? Because I, I think, especially legislatively, I know here yeah. in the U S and I'm sure other countries are plagued by this problem. You have very short term, thinking mm, in terms of yeah. oh here's x problem we're going to create this legislation to fix that problem and we're not even going to pay any attention to any negative externalities or other right. consequences yeah, because, of our actions yeah. and then yeah. eventually down 10 years later they're like oh this created so many problems let's go and create another law 
to address that. Right. And then and it just right. keeps on going and going and going. And we really need to be able to break the cycle so that we can step back and say, hey, we need to be sort of leveling up as a, as a society and as a species to yeah. make better long-term decisions for large groups of people. And it's yeah. it's a really tough nut to crack, I think, because there are so many pressures to just focus on the short term, whether it's because of lobbying dollars and corporate influence yeah. or whatever. And I, I think that I, I, I am very hopeful that millennials and Generation Z will be the first generations taking power to be able to sort of break out of that and understand, hey, we need to make decisions not just for us right now in this moment. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. And it's really, if you follow the incentives, it's like lawmakers have to focus on getting elected because if you have, if you have some lawmakers who happen to be trying to think long term, they will be kind of kicked out of office by other aspiring lawmakers who, who make promises, campaign promises or whatever that they can't even really keep. And so it's, yeah, you know, so it's an interesting question to try and explore. Like how, how do you do that? I, I think reform is very difficult. Like, I, I mean, I, I, respect anybody who's trying to do it at that sort of and whether it's you're trying to fix education and trying to fix healthcare you're trying to fix systems of law trying to work within the existing systems i think we do need people to try and do that but it is such a i, like, I don't have the stomach for that like it's really uh <laughs> you know, you're, just gonna, you're just gonna get defeated day in day out and and again i guess even to do that you have to be thinking long term and you have to be building coalitions with people who expect that they're going to fail at it for years and years, maybe decades, right? And and still be willing to... And I think, and you know, so it's an interesting question. It's, it's actually a really interesting question. How do you how do you motivate people to, to do things that may not work for a long period of time and maybe even not, not work in their lifetimes? And I think it's possible. I think people can be kind of incentivized to work on such things but like they have to know that their work is not wasted so even if even if you fail like you can have valiant failures that are like like an example to the people who come after you right and i think so there's there's much to think about there like how do we and it's it's very much about i think support networks and like people so it's like if if someone is struggling to try and accomplish something and it's not working out, usually the thing that prevents them from giving up is that there are other people who are cheering them on, I think. And so, yeah, it, it, come, it boils back down again to like building communities, building networks of relationships. Yeah. Oh, totally. And it is such a, such a huge challenge because then even when you do switch to the long-term thinking, there's just as much, if not more, disagreement over what the best long-term outcomes are and, and how we should get yeah. there and how we should incentivize it. I think that the pandemic has been a, a really fascinating case study in this mm -hmm. uh, when you contrast it with climate change, right? So right. with climate change, it's there's certainly different things that happen that can show people evidence of what's happening to the earth. And at the same time, that's an incredibly, even though there are near-term consequences, it is an incredibly long-term problem mm. because it's not something like we're just going to solve, right? It's yeah. an ongoing planetary stewardship project, yeah. right? Yeah. And over the last, what, 18-ish months, we've now been confronted with a moderately threatening virus and pandemic mm -hmm. all over the world. And 
a lot of people are just not on board with getting collective shit together as a species, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's like you, you think of there's what there's less COVID in the world than fits inside a Coke can, right? It's right. like this yeah. small amount of matter is just fucking our shit up writ yeah. large. And there's so much misinformation and disinformation around it. And it's like, okay, if we can't get our shit together for something that is a clear and present danger right now, right? Mm -hmm. How are we supposed to gather people together for these long-term problems? And I think ultimately the big issue is managing incentives versus forcing behaviors. Right. Oh, like yeah. We talk about whether it's mass mandates or lockdowns or other things like that, that regardless of their efficacy, create mm -hmm. resentment. And what we yeah. want to do is create just like when you're talking about the different like wearables and different technology that like, oh, hey, when it's super easy to just track everything about your body, like that's when yeah. biohacking will just go explode. Right. Like yeah. it's it's a big yeah. burgeoning industry now. But so if we had something where we can properly incentivize people to say, oh, hey, like just participate in this, just where we're going to you say you don't like any masks or masks don't work except for N95. So we're just going to give everyone N95s. Right. Or just figuring out different ways to do that versus we're sort of right now just the hammer and everything looks like a nail and we're just going to keep whacking at it. And it's like, well, yeah. When you get things coming out of different countries with with data that says, well, this strategy isn't working, and then you want to say, oh, well, we're different, or we're going to do this instead. And it's really allowed everything to become over-politicized when we, we do really need to come together as a species more and find ways in which people can do that that can transcend the political. Yeah, yeah. I One, one way I, I sort of think about this is that some of some of the issue is that like social trust, I think, is probably at a at an all time low ish, and I, I don't. Some people get very doomsday ish about that, but I also I, I think it's it's like a pendulum sort of thing. It's like mm. it's I, I don't think that people I, I don't think that we are on like some kind of inevitable descent into like dark ages chaos. I think it's just that. Like, so to some degree, like communities used to be centered around like religious institutions, for example, and that's just kind of not become, it's, it's drifted away from being the center of, of civic life. But I think it's entirely possible. And I, I think there is a demand for it. People want it. So I think there will be an increase in new kinds of community. And we're already seeing it, right? The future is already here, just unevenly distributed. So we're already seeing... I guess I guess influencers is one way people think about it. Although I think that's a bit too commercialized, and it's when we think of influencers, people tend to think of like Instagram stuff, people selling products. But like I think increasingly we will see that some people will step up and and be respected community leaders of in their own right, where like many many different kinds of communities. So if if you if you want to, if you're imagining like graphing it out, it's like there's many different angles of planes okay that's a bit too nerdy but <laughs> it's like um one way to think about it is like think about every human every person as an as a node in a network and every relationship they have with other people as just links with other nodes and if people are very very isolated and they don't have many links then it's like trying to to 
pass any kind of information through that network is it's just very fraught. It's very so like if you want to think about about like a very polarized red versus blue sort of of network, like then you have you have two very competing different worldviews, effectively effectively separate networks almost, right? And so the challenge is, I think, to incentivize the creation of more and more like parallel networks at the same time that, that that reach across divides and and give people kind of communal what am i trying to say here like like if if i if i could draw it on a on a whiteboard for you it'd be clearer but it's like basically kind of like cross cross relationships and and like bridging you know, the like, divide like, yeah. yeah, like so like soil erosion happens when like there are no roots in, in the no plant roots that holding the soil together. And so like similarly, there's like community erosion of sorts where if people don't have like this mesh network of relationships that is robust, then like yeah, they get swept up by whatever whatever's controversial, whatever like some persuasive person on, on YouTube telling them that vaccines don't work or whatever. And yeah, it's just we I think that if we have more kind of responsible community leaders step up at every scale, like from the smallest kind of local city communities to, to larger and larger ones, and then those people will be able to have an outsized influence on nudging other people's behavior towards pro-social outcomes. Like I, I do think it's true that a lot of people, most people, I would say, like want to do good and want to be valued for doing good and want to participate in a healthy kind of nourishing environment, but they don't really trust their environments to give them that. Like whether we're talking about like a work environment or just a broader social environment and the the nature of our existing kind of media environment discourages that because the media the media basically encourages people to scare the shit out of each other and themselves right like it, it seeks out the worst possible stories and, and without being like malicious right it's just following its own incentives and it, it will if there's like some horrible news somewhere in a large country like it the media makes sure that the whole country knows about it and then then like so everyone becomes a bit more fearful a bit less trusting and so we need kind of like i'm, I'm not saying that that news should be suppressed but like it should be counterbalanced with with other narratives at the same time so like one way i like seeing how this played out there's a period of time where there was a there was a men are trash hashtag going around and that just became a meme for a while and i i do think it was it was necessary and important because there was there was there was a, a crisis of sexual harassment abuse and and if you look at if you kind of graph it out it's very often like a, a, it, you can take a very, very small percentage of people, like 1% of people who can do a hideous amount of damage. They can do like 70% of the damage because they get around. And then those stories, if they are not heard, it's like the, the victims of those abusers whatever, or however you want to frame it, like they, they suffer in silence. And so those stories need to be shared. But if, if that's like the primary or dominant narrative that gets spread, then there's a second, second order effect of... of nervousness suspicion people worry that literally everybody is like a predator in, in disguise or in waiting and that's not good either because then you lower social trust and and the, the existence of a handful of bad, bad actors makes good actors suspicious of each other and that can kind of spiral into something terrible and what i'd love to see is that now there's this new kind of response that has caught on which is i don't know if you've seen it but like on my, on my part of twitter there's this meme of dudes rock 
which is just like guys showing stories and videos of other guys just kind of being good men right like just taking care of each other having fun i saw this video of this like this spanish guitarist dancing in the street with like an old man like they're all these it's 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 a more complete picture like there's there's bad in the world yes but there's also good and we need people to see that there is good in the world because that informs their mental models which informs their behavior which is so it's like this this loop right so we have to be careful we have to be more thoughtful i think of of our information diets and what information we present to each other and the world i think that's something that ever since like so smartphones is is this technology is so recent actually right like like getting videos streamed straight to your phone like it's barely, not even been 10 years right it's been like 5 years ish 6 years ish that you can you know open your twitter open your youtube and your phone and see like high definition video of something else happening somewhere else and so like the the social norms around this are still evolving and i i do think we are seeing like people becoming more thoughtful about this so my hope is that if we get more and more people to consider this we we might we might there, there is a possibility i don't want to i don't want to promise this because it's it might be too optimistic but it's possible that like the the worst days of our media kind of like poisoning if you want to say that like uh, just and, and poison doesn't necessarily mean like again like people are lying or people are, like it's the dose that makes the poison right so like our our dosage of how we consume content is like all out of whack and i think people are increasingly wisening up to this and and so it's like it's like and you can almost use like an infection metaphor so it's like we are infected with bad doses of information hazards and and now there's like there's like an anti antibody kind of response like the white blood cells are coming along and yeah, I think if more people have conversations about these things, we may come around the bend. I think it's good to have some hope, but you should, I mean, you shouldn't you shouldn't assume that things will definitely be okay because it requires that we do the work to make it better and that requires like everybody everybody has to chip in, right? Everybody has to kind of notice when like one of their friends is spiraling out on social media and and posting a lot of crazy things and and they're probably not okay and like someone needs to check on them and stuff like that. And it's all those little things that add up. And and so I I I see this as something that's important that needs doing. And I, I hope I can help. And I hope that we'll see progress. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I think I talked to a lot of people on this show about how there is this overwhelming sense, uh, I think, especially when you're younger, of just like you come into the world and you just learn more about it. And it's just, oh, this is just the way things are when it's really just the result of years and centuries of decisions, largely, especially in this country made by white men. And now we're getting Mm -hmm. to a point of like more people are getting more seats at the table and that we need to continue to push on how decisions are being made because all the decisions that have been made to this point can be unmade. It can be an incredibly heavy lift depending on the different issues, but it's not like this was just destined to be like, this is just like the way things had to happen. It's just the way things happened. And so if we want a different future, we actually have to be proactive about making that. But first it is about envisioning what that looks like. Who does, how do we get everyone a seat at the table and how do we make the discussions more productive and how do we produce something that 
it is a better world for everyone to live in. And yeah. that actually takes me to my next question, because I was, you're talking earlier about roadmaps and things. And I, I want to bring up your Twitter cover image, actually, because I think you have one mm -hmm. of the coolest Twitter cover images, which is essentially like a, a roadmap to, I think, living a better individual life. But if you yeah. sort of zoom it out, it is a, a way to create a better society in some ways, yes. right? You talk yeah. about the main thing holding you back is the way that you're thinking. Making friends is is one of the best things you can do because it's it's dangerous to go alone and you heal yourself by helping others. You should be kind and, and serve others and that we can do more together than we can do alone. And mm -hmm. I I think it's really something that people don't necessarily think about that much of what should my principles be? How should yes. I approach the world? And how can we bring this together so that like you're talking about, if we're independent nodes, how can we improve each of those nodes so that the connection between each node is stronger and more productive for society writ large? Mm -hmm. So tell me, how did you come up with your roadmap and how, what's your thought process around it and how expansive it gets? Right. So um, I, I kind of made that like on a whim, but it's based on several many years of, of journaling. So I'll start with the journaling, I guess. So I used to blog kind of casually ab about my day-to-day -day life, school, stuff like that. And then by chance, I happened to blog a little bit about local politics and that kind of went viral locally which was fun and satisfying. It felt like I was doing important work. This was kind of like before Facebook had like a share button and stuff like that. So people used to share blog posts. So I used to get a lot of blog traffic locally, kind of talking about local issues and stuff. And I kind of found myself subjected to the, even without any money involved, I found myself subjected to like the media incentives where my content that was like measured and, and kind of like when I tried to be, encouraging and, and all of those things like that didn't get much traffic and if i happen to be slightly more incendiary and you know I, I would say that i'm i'm still the same person i've always been so it's not like i was like uh like vindictive or, or cruel or, or outrage and stuff like that but I, I did kind of use stronger language i was like a passionate teenager and like those posts that were like dunking on like ministers and, and authorities and stuff like those went more viral and but so so I, I would do more of that because I kind of subconsciously felt like, oh, that's what that's what people want to read. That's what like people care about. And that got more and more viral. But like my comments were getting worse and worse. And, and that was very kind of distressing for me. I felt like my audience was not my audience was like actively kind of getting worse and worse. And so after a couple of years of that, I just walked away from the whole thing. I just didn't want to continue down that path. And so I remember that I, I loved blogging and writing for its own sake to begin with. And I was, and so this is around the same time that I started my first job. So I didn't have as much free time anymore as well. And I just kind of questioned like, what, what is it all for? What am I doing this for? What's, what, what's my goal? What are the outcomes I want? Like, what am I really trying to do here? And so I decided to kind of spend, a, and, and I guess I was shaken by the degree to which I had kind of allowed external circumstances or external reality to, to shape my behavior. And so I was determined to spend like an indeterminate amount of time um, just kind of 
reflecting on on myself and my life and my values and priorities and so on and so i did that so i in 2012 i started this this writing project i called uh, a thousand word vomit project which is my goal is to write a million words and and part of this is just that i want to be a good writer and so on and part of how you get good at anything is to do a lot of it so i'm like okay i want to write a million words in a thousand sets of a thousand words and and a lot of it kind of ended up just being whatever was on my mind. It, it kind of went back to like the earliest childhood sort of approach, like just hey journal. Like today I'm thinking about these things. These things happened. I'm I'm stressed about work because of this. I missed the deadline. I don't feel too good about that. And it's just a lot of rambling, a lot of thinking out loud, and a lot of troubleshooting my life experience and just being like, why am I not happy? Why do I feel stressed? Why am I making mistakes? Why am I not? acting in accordance with my highest values more right why am i and, and so i just kind of was in conversation with myself about that for a long time and then eventually i remember a friend of mine julia she posted i think it was a map of bay area meme space which was, which was like a which is kind of like this like it was like a map of like the different sort of groups of ideas that people discuss and I just, I just thought it was kind of cool to see like a map with a lot of different ideas that were related. And so I'm like, oh, cool. Like that's, that's one way of presenting information. I want to kind of do the same for my own ideas. Like the things that I think about a lot, the, the things that I talk about a lot and like the recurring things that come up in my, in my introspective journaling. And so, so yeah, I just, I just started doing that. I started kind of, as it was kind of a casual for fun like I'm whistling to myself as I'm kind of plotting out all of my recurring talking points. And like, it really resonated with people. People were like asking, like even, even today, like every week or so, somebody will DM me asking me, Hey, like, can I, can I get the full image of that? Can I get the source? And uh, yeah, so it's been, it's not like I set out to make the map. I, I think what I, I set out to have a healthy relationship with myself. There are things that people don't talk about so much publicly anymore and that's like discussing virtue and and wisdom i think if you use these words people people kind of get turned off they assume that you are you know so we have the phrase like virtue signaling right like this idea of people trying to, mm. to show off what a good person they are but like i think fundamentally like if you read you read like you go back and you read in you read emerson you read you go further back to seneca and cicero like, like people, humans have always been concerned with like, what is a good life? How do you live a good life? How do you make good decisions and be proud of yourself, earn your own respect, right? And, and that I've always been passionate about that. I've always kind of cared. And yeah, it's, it's challenging to have that conversation publicly because there's a chance that people will interpret you as a, as a poser. <laughs> but I have always mm. personally really cared about this. And so I, I, I journaled introspectively about it for a long time. I actually kind of feel like I'm due for a, like, so I have been living a very public life the past maybe four years or so. And I kind of feel like I'm, I'm it's the, 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 the tide is beginning to turn and it, I might be due for like more long form introspection. Because I, I do find that when you're talking to an audience, like a large audience publicly every day, like they, it's, it's a, it's a two way relationship. So it's like, they will respond to you the way with, with what their concerns and worldview stuff is. And you can kind of lose sight of that, of the more fundamental concerns. And so I, I mean, I'm just thinking out loud about that, but, but yeah, I mean, to answer the question directly, it's just a lot of introspection, a lot of 
sitting with myself in front of a blank sheet of paper and be like, okay, Visa, what's on your mind? You know, what do you care about? What's bothering you? What's, what, what did you do wrong? What do you, what, how can we do better? And it's interesting to reread. I find that some of my earlier journaling was kind of harsh. Like I, I, I realize it now in retrospect. I was like kind of mean to myself. I was like, oh, dude, you fucked up. You're so, you're so messed up, dude. Like, why are you doing this? Why, why, why can't you learn? Why can't you be better? And like now I can see with clear eyes and experience and I look back, I can see that, oh, like being, I was so harsh on myself and that wasn't helping. It doesn't actually make things better. Like you have to, like a little bit maybe is, is understandable, but when you kind of belabor the point, it, it doesn't help you build a better relationship with yourself as, as with anybody else, right? Like the important thing is to kind of acknowledge what went wrong and, and focus on what steps you need to take to make things better and then take those steps right but we inherit all these this this trauma other people's trauma people's frustrations people are impatient because the fast pace of life all of those things and yeah i I would say these these ideas they aren't original right like you can you can probably find them in like the bible even right like just any any text of that tries to to impart wisdom and experience right like the lord of the rings if you if you you watch it and you examine it closely star wars like all all the great stories i think try to share these kind of fundamental principles of like what is a good life and what are the lessons that artists and and have learned in their lives that they want to share with others and and so on and yeah so it's it's that So you brought up some books there. I'd love to know what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? I mean, some of them, it's very hard to answer this question because I would say more than any single book, it's really the large volume of many, many different books that I've read. So it's like the meta book, right? Like it's the it's the <laughs> lens, yeah. the landscape of many, many books. So if I had to pick out, yeah, it's very, very difficult to pick out specific books, but I think, so this, I'm just looking around at my shelf. This, this Confessions of an Advertising Man by David Ogilvy. I wouldn't say it's like the most seminal book or whatever, but like it's just one of like hundreds of books that have, I tend to revisit and reference pretty often. And David Ogilvy, I would say, so he was an advertising guy. But the interesting thing, if you read his, his autobiography, is that he, he, had a, he had taste and he had a sense of occasion he knew how to enjoy his life. He was, and, and he was, but not like simplistic pleasure-seeking way. Like he sought, he tried to do good work. He tried to hire good people. He tried to create a great work environment for his, for his employees. And he still had time to kind of have fun and, and be cheeky and have a sense of humor. And he, there's like, the, it's, it's not so much what he says, but how he says it. Yeah, and I think, I think that is the recurring thing for a lot of my favorite books and authors and so on it's like i would also point to like alan watts who actually actually i haven't actually read any of alan watts books i listened to a lot of his lectures on youtube and then i read a bunch of his quotes on like goodreads and stuff but like yeah the thing about alan watts is that he has he had such a cheeky cheerful way of dealing with like life's difficult questions and so he would be talking about things like despair and grief and and horror and he'll be doing it. He'll be like chuckling to himself while he's doing it. And like that, that levity that he would bring to, sit to, to this, I felt that listening to him go through that like gave me permission to kind of lighten up and, and laugh at my own, to, to laugh at my own misery and, and depression and, and all of that, but not like in a condescending way, right? Like to, like to just kind of see the absurdity in the whole thing and, and like you kind of laugh with it. 
And then when you do, like he has a quote about how um, he says, laughter is about trans anxiety and laughter are two sides of the same coin. And like spirituality is about transforming anxiety into laughter. I think that's what he said, something like that. And yeah, it's just, it's, that has been something that was transformative for me. Like around 2015, I remember being a very pent up, stressed, anxious, young adult, working adult, and like just overwhelmed by the world. And Alan Watts helped me a lot with that. I'm looking again at my shelf. The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. So this, this is a book about creativity. And it's, it's, I think even on the front page, there's a quote that's like, uh, a vital gem, a kick in the ass by Esquire. And yeah, you know, so Stephen Pressfield, Stephen Pressfield wrote, a, he wrote a bunch of books before this. He wrote like stuff about like Greek history and the Peloponnesian War and stuff like that. So he's, he's a legit author. He's not just a person who writes about writing. But yeah, it's, it's like a lot of short, it's like, it's, a, it's barely, it's less than 200 pages. And it's like each page is like, it's like a couple of paragraphs, maybe sometimes even just one or two lines. But it's very, a very real description of the creative struggle and, and the fear that you face when you're doing creative work. And yeah, that's, it's, I, I found it kind of helpful. It's like, a, it's almost like having a mentor figure kind of nudge you along. There's this great Twitter thread of Hayao Miyazaki. It's, I mean, it's, so it's, it's just screenshots from his documentary, from a documentary about how he works. And the interesting thing to witness in that is that so Miyazaki is one of the best animators, illustrators in the world. Like everyone, almost everyone agrees on that. But like you can see him struggling with his work. He's like, ah, oh, you know, right now it doesn't look like much. I feel like a, a comb with tooth with the teeth missing. He says, I've been working all day. I only have one page. Like, ah, oh, it's such a it's such a hassle, such a hassle. And then he says, but if you told me why don't you stop, why don't you quit? I'd say shut up because like the the best things in life are hassle. <laughs> And this is what I want to be doing in my life. And if, if, if your life's hassles went away, you'd want them back. Like, and, and that's a very, there's a profundity to that. I think there is, he models for, uh, I mean, he's just living his life, right? But like what I see in that is that he's modeling a way of um, embodying the creative struggle and, you know, it'll kick your ass and you will want to swear and shout. But while he is struggling, in, in the day-to-day, -day, like, you can see that there's, like, this meta kind of zen, like, despite the struggle, right? Like, with the struggle. He's not struggling about the struggle. He has accepted the struggle. And he's, and so that that eliminates, like, the, the, the kind of a recursive chaos that I think kind of throws people off. And that is a metaphor for, for living in general, right? Like, we, we are going to live through difficult times and there's no point. I'm an optimistic person in general, but like, I'm not going to pretend that the pandemic hasn't kicked my ass, right? Like I was planning to, to travel with my wife. I was planning to do all these things and I can't do it because of the pandemic. And that, that sucks. But like, we shouldn't have to be in denial about that. That's not healthy. And, and like, usually if you're trying to deny those things, you end up suppressing them in some way. And then it will, it will kind of come out in some other way that you can't see, like in like a shadow subconscious sort of acting out. But you can accept what pain you're dealing with, what frustrations and struggles and so on. And then you deal, you face that. It might kick your ass. It might put you out of commission for a while. But then you have like this meta. And that's like the Albus Camus quote, right? Which is, is it Camus? 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 Uh, and he says, in the depths of, um, of, of winter, I found in my soul or in my heart like an in unconquerable summer, something like that, right? Like just in the in the midst of despair, 
there is this this underlying hope or this underlying drive this this will to live and this will to to be right to 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 not and like you know the invictus poem is kind of in the same same kind of vibe and yeah i found it helpful to to even just to read these things out loud and know that somebody else said it and meant them like there's there's a way in which Carl Sagan said that books are, are, are magic, are proof that humans are capable of working magic because you read a bunch of symbols on like squiggles on, on paper, which is like dead trees, and you can hallucinate whatever it is that the author was trying to convey. And you can feel feelings from looking at symbols. You can, you can have ideas and thoughts and you can imagine things. You can get excited. And it's, it's the same for someone listening to a podcast, right? You're hearing vibrations in, in your ears from, mm. you know, that we, we record now. But you can feel the emotion that people are, are conveying. You can you can get a sense of what what they're talking about, and and you like some people say, ah, oh, it's, it's like the internet creates this this parasocial thing where you feel like you're you're friends with people who are not friends with you, and there's there's some of that, sure. But like it's also kind of a miracle that that we can transmit ideas and vibes and and encouragement. Like yeah, I saw a friend tweet earlier today that's like, oh, there's this social contagion for like despair and i think she was talking about like eating disorders and some there's there's something going around about like i think young people have been watching uh, a youtuber who has some kind of tourettes maybe and like the, the they have been there's been like a social contagion effect around that it seems i don't really want to get into that but like but just like what can be used for bad can also be used for good right like we can put out the messages that we want to put out into the world, right? We can plant the flowers that we want to plant and we can encourage and, and focus on what we want to see more of. And it can spread. I, I, again, I think like how I was talking earlier about like the immune systems, about our information diets, I think, and, and this goes all, oh my God, it's, it goes back all the way to like Pandora's box, right? Like you open the box and there's all these horrors that come out, but at the bottom of the box is hope. And that's like thousands of years old and, and, as an idea and it's still relevant today like like for all of the horrors that have been unleashed covid or whatever like there's still hope there's still we can still reach out to each other we can still have conversations and and in in that space is is the the seed for a flourishing of a completely new reality that we cannot even begin to imagine yet right and so like treating treating that opportunity with reverence i think and and hope and and humility, because you can't know, right? But like there, there's possibility. Living with that, I think it's, it's a little bit scary because you, you don't have the certainty. And I, and I think some people, some people actually choose to live with, um, like they, they, they imagine a bleak future and feel confident and certain about it. So even as they are miserable because they are they're imagining a, a certain future that's horrible, like the meta level is that I don't know if meta is the right word to use, but like there's there is a certain comfort in a certain bad outcome because of the certainty, whereas an uncertain good outcome, like it it might happen, it might not. Like that's a scarier place to be, even though you're you're kind of trying for something good, and and so it actually does take courage to be happy, and it does take courage to kind of be willing to hope even though you're going to be disappointed right like in in all of 2019 i was like ah april 2020 i'm gonna go to new york and it's gonna be the trip of my life you know i was like i was so happy so hopeful <laughs> that whole year and then COVID hit in like march and then i'm like 
like there is a part of me that's like oh man this is what i get for having hopes right this is what i get for <laughs> which is true right and it's painful but like you can see the dark path and the dark path is because i have been burnt for having hopes to avoid getting burnt again i should never hope for anything again ever like that, that's that's a path that can be taken and some people do take that path and it's like it's like security by like the most secure place in the world is like solitary confinement right like so you imprison yourself to avoid being avoid bad surprises but then you also prevent the chance of good surprises and so it's like what you you think about that and and what what do you want out of life and so if you want to if you want the possibility of good things to happen then you have to be open to being disappointed like there's no way of of uh, having a good life without being open to the disappointment and and despair and so on. Oh, definitely got to be able to detach from the outcomes, right? Mhm. Well, Visa, this has been such a fun and enlightening conversation and it does bring me to my final question of the day, and that mm-hmm. is what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Oh, that's sweet. There's a couple of ways I would answer this question. So the the sort of so the the broad answer i would say is just anybody who has ever made art like anybody who's ever written a book anybody who's ever been a street busker right like if you go on youtube there are people who teach other people how to unclog toilets and how to tune guitars and how to get like how to massage the the knots out of your wrist like there are people who just do that they just they just want to help other people and that that's the the sum of all of those interactions to me is creates like this nexus of hope and and optimism and like as long as such people exist i consider myself to be on their team so that's one way of answering it it's very broad a more specific I, i could talk about my wife who married me when we were 22 and she she has endured like she's seen me at my worst like we met when we were teenagers and she has endured like just all my incompetence and all my failings and all of that and she has stood by me the whole time which is i I will spend my life kind of earning the like kind of con- communicating the gratitude I have for that. And that's not that's kind of uh but you know saying choosing a spouse is another kind of predictable answer. The other thing I would talk about is uh my ex-boss. So he hired me at in 2013 and he 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 took a big risk on me. Like like I mean uh, in, in from my point of view it's a big risk. From his point of view maybe it was just like a yeah it's a, it's a risk, right? He was in the business of taking risks and he took one on me. And but on top of hiring me he he was like I've described him as it's like he was my coach and my therapist and he paid me, right? Like he's my boss. And we would have meetings every every couple of weeks initially when the company grew larger it became like once a month. But like yeah he was like my therapist he was really he would ask me questions about what my goals were and what I'm working on and what what's on my mind and he would guide me with his questions and like so what are you going to do about that what what's your next steps how do you how do you think like that's going to play out like he really kind of challenged me to to be more adult and be more mature and more I I describe him sometimes as like a zen robot like <laughs> he's, a, he's a sweet guy it's not uh it's not super expressive but it's just it's a different way of of being and and I have a lot of love and and admiration for him and we're still good friends like so I left the company like in 2018 and I just met him again like a couple of weeks ago I was introducing him to another friend and yeah you could see it as he was my employer so it's in it's in his interest to kind of 
get the most out of his employee. But like, I do feel like he went above and beyond what anybody expects from their employer. And I've said that a lot of what I try to do online is I try to pay forward what he gave to me. And so he, at some point, I described him as he was more curious about me than I had been curious about myself. Like, like in the sense that like I would be late for a meeting and then he would ask me, hey, why were you late? And then I'm like, uh, like normally when people ask, like if I'm thinking back to my parents and to my teachers and so on, like if they ask me something like, oh, why didn't you do something? Like it, they don't really want to know. They just want you to kind of perform like contrition. They want you to perform that you're sorry. And so I, I started that routine. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm a terrible person. He's like, no, no, I, 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 I don't say that. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that. Like I want to understand what happened so that in case there's anything we can do to make sure that doesn't happen again. And I was like, huh. Nobody has ever said that to me in the first 20 years of my life. And uh, so he asked me, so what happened? Like, and, and I, I, kind of, I kind of blanked out. I was like, I didn't know what to say. I'm like, what do you mean? So why am I late? Like, I, I slept late. La. I, I slept late. And so I woke up late. So I'm late. So like, oh, why do you sleep late? Like, oh, I, I was playing video games. <laughs> and he's like, okay, so you knew that you had a meeting the next day, right? I'm like, yes. And like, so why did you play video games at night knowing that you have a meeting the next day? And I'm like, because I'm a horrible person. <laughs> it's like, no, we're not gonna go with that answer. Like, we wanna, I wanna know, like, you know, what's the, what is the thought process? Like, you might be resisting understanding what the actual thought process is because it's like your subconscious or whatever. But like, we can figure it out. Like, why did you play video games late into the night when you have a meeting the next day? And then I had to, I had to think about it for a while. I'm like, I guess, I guess it's because I work pretty hard and I spend a lot of hours working and I don't set aside time for pleasure or for fun. And so at night when I'm tired and I'm not really thinking straight, there's a part of me that's like, fuck it, let's just play video games. And then I don't pay attention to the time. I lose track of time. And next thing I know is 3 a.m. And then I go to bed and I wake up late and I'm late for the meeting. And then he's like, aha. So what does that suggest to you that you should do about your sense of, of like, like your schedule and, and how you have fun and so on. And I'm like, oh, I guess I should set aside time for playing video games. And, and I tried it out and it worked and it actually made me less likely to be late for meetings, right? So that was, a, that was a conversation that was longer than he had to have with me, but it was effective. And it, 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 it made me a better employee, sure, but it also made me a better person. It made me more kind and patient mm -hmm. with myself and it makes me more kind and patient with other people. And yeah, it's just a, a tremendous kindness, I think. And it's so effective. That's the crazy thing, right? Like it's not like it's yeah. not like a sacrifice on his part, right? It's a because mm. it's an investment on his part. And the thing is, he just had a longer view of a longer view and a broader understanding of like an employer-employee relationship than what is conventionally assumed. And so like that's that I would say that's like a microcosm of like how we can play long games better as a as a species, right? Like it's, it starts with individuals and their interactions with themselves and their interactions with each other. And then we have like like communities, small groups of people where we kind of unblock each other and increase each other's power levels by helping each other with these problems. And then, yeah, if we keep doing that and we scale it and we teach more and more people to do it, like I think we, we have a good shot at... I don't know how good the shot will be, but like... <laughs> knowing that we can, knowing that we can try, like I want to be on the side of the team of people who are trying. Like, mm, even absolutely. if we try and we fail, like I want to be with the people who are trying. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, Visa, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So today's episode is brought to you by the HSCL Association. 
If you're an HOCL business owner or looking to join the industry, visit hocla.org to learn more and book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yeah.